Hello and welcome to the Detoxicity Podcast. I am Mike Joseph. I produce and host and created this show. I thank you for listening. Uh, if you are new to this podcast, if this is your first time listening, welcome aboard. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, I thank you for hanging in and sticking with us uh, through the last year and a half or so. Um, it is really my distinct pleasure to bring you these conversations. I find them illuminating even as a listener and not just the host. If you are interested in exploring this podcast any further, feel free to A, hit the uh, uh, subscribe button on whichever platform you're using to listen. Also, please feel free to vote us up on those podcast platforms so we appear near the top of the search and uh, move up in the rankings. And uh, by all means, give us a rating. If you like the show, if you hate the show, if you feel somehow conflicted about the show, uh, please rate, subscribe. And comment. You can follow me on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy, and you can follow me on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. You can even drop me a line via old-fashioned email, DetoxPod at gmail.com. Also, feel free to reach out via email if you know somebody that would be a good fit for this show, or if you yourself would be interested in talking to me for an episode of this show. Once again, I really, really appreciate you listening. I think these are important messages that we're sending. These are important stories we're telling, and uh, I hope this all continues. Once again, you are appreciated. I hope that you and yours are taking care. My love of music tends to direct me towards quite a few potential podcast guests, and the seeds for this week's episode were sown earlier this year when I joined a bracket-style music tournament held by my buddy Crispin Cott, who you might remember from episode 36 of Detoxicity. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen, it's a good one. Any group of music geeks gathered in a space, whether it be virtual or IRL, is bound to have personalities, right? That group introduced me to Brian Mack, this episode's subject. Brian is a music geek through and through. You'll find out just how much of a music geek he is during our conversation. In addition to collecting records and going to tons of shows, Brian is also, I think, Detoxicity's first lawyer. He's a practicing attorney in the small town of Bishop, California, where he was born and raised. In our episode, Brian talks about the unscrupulous reputation a lot of lawyers have and what drew him to practice law in the first place. Uh, we also talk about how small, time, small town life suits him, why live music is good for his body image, and we find out what lines he draws to achieve a better work-life balance, something I think many of us deal with. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here's Brian. So my name is Brian Mack. I'm an attorney. I live in a very little mountain town called Bishop, California. It's a place where I was raised. I wasn't born here, but it's about 4,000 people, middle of nowhere, right on the border of Nevada. And I'm a small town attorney here, just, you know, trying to make small town life work. I didn't ever picture myself living in a small town. I left this place as soon as I could get out of here at 18. But it's funny, if you grow up in these small little communities, they get their hooks in you, and it just kind of drew me back in. I've been here nine years now, yeah. which is wild to think about, and I don't picture myself leaving it. There's a lot to offer living in the middle of nowhere, especially as an attorney. There's three of us in town, so I, I'm always way too busy. I've got way too much work every single day, which is great. I can make a total living here, but... Man, it's, it's so nice to just be somewhere where you really feel comfortable, where you feel like you got a community. And it's easy enough to travel to cities, but I can come back home and uh, I can do that and never hit somebody in the face with my, my elbows, you know? That's crazy. I don't know what that feels like. <laughs> I've, oh, 
it's it, it does it freaks me out when i visit places like new york city if i'm there for more than a few days i i need my space eventually again it's a very different way of living loving cities for as long as i did i didn't expect to be back out here but it's great where have your travels taken you where did you live for a decent period of time anywhere outside of where you are now yeah, so I, I did 10 years in Los Angeles. I did both uh, my undergrad and my law school there and took some time in between. And so I lived all throughout the city of LA. And we're in a weird place where I live. Bishop is most known probably for the movie Chinatown, huh. which is about, it's, it's the story of where LA got its water from, which LA steals about 60 to 70% of its water every year from my valley. Wow. So most people who live here hate Los Angeles because it turned our valley into this dry dust bowl sort of place. The flip side is LA owns about 90% of the terrain around us, which means we are one of the most pristine natural areas left in America. You know, it's kind of this weird balancing act of on one hand, we don't have our water anymore, but we get to have mountains that people come from all over the world. <laughs> It because we didn't blow it and just turn it into Palm Springs. Right. I got to ask, what attracted you to being a, an attorney? When you were a kid, were you carrying around a little briefcase and watching LA Law or Law and Order? Or were you one of those people? Tot My second grade yearbook, they had us put down, what do you want to be when you grow up? I found this recently. I wanted to be the first attorney on Mars. So Your hands are there. Always wanted to be an attorney. I don't know why. It was part of it. I think was you get to have so much control over what you're doing, and you get to affect other people's lives, hopefully in a positive way. So for me, that's always been a goal. Both my parents were public servants. Uh, my mother was a teacher my whole life, and then my dad was a cop. And so they both instilled in me: you try and do things where you help other people. That's what life is kind of about: is trying to make other people's lives better if you can. And your life should be in service of as many people as possible. So an attorney seemed like a good way to do that, where you also have a lot of control over your own life. Plus, I, I love Plus, you love what? Reading. Oh, man. Okay. My parents' punishment for me when I was a kid was they would take my books away and send me outside. <laughs> okay. And, I, I mean, legal reading isn't reading for fun. It's not like you're picking up... Uh a biography or a, a fiction book and reading it like that's that's research capital r research yeah these these crazy you know oh, case books that we have all over the place they're dense but there is a level of fun to it because it helps you figure out why do we do the things the way we do in american society you know the law is kind of the basis for so many things that we do in everyday life i love being able to really get an understanding of the nitty-gritty of that stuff like, how does it actually operate and why? And when things don't make sense, usually there's a legal reasoning behind it. Sure. You know, somebody made the wrong call in a court case once, and now we're dealing with the ramifications later. I like to understand when we're not functioning too. And why did we blow it so bad? How did we get here? There's a, a sense for, I think, quite a few people that being a lawyer is not necessarily a, a noble profession. Like, I think people have just gotten used to the Johnny Cochran's of the world or whatever. And they, they think that they're like unscrupulous. Uh, Rudy, they're really Giuliani's of the world, actually. Absolutely. I'll put it to you like that. And you 
and actually a lot of the other lawyers that I know really work towards doing good things for people and helping people. Do you find that when you explain to somebody that you're an attorney, they get the wrong image in their heads? I think to a certain extent, yes, that um, a, a major problem of that is the corporate law world, where it's become so cutthroat and so just focused on money or focused on trying to get a result for your client at the expense of everybody else. And both of those approaches are just so negative and they have, they've become the defining aspect of attorney that, yeah, I think really most people picture attorneys as we're there for money, trying to, you know, scalp people for as much as we can and no morals. You'll do whatever you're willing to do in order to get to the end result. I know plenty of attorneys who are that way. So it's not an inaccurate representation of us ever. You know, it's, it's completely accurate for many, many people in the field. But there's a lot that lawyers can do to service the community. And I think, especially in a small town, that's kind of the main role that we should be taking on here. You know, there, there isn't corporate influence a whole lot in this little town here. There's just, there's not room for it, really. I get to write trust and wills for old grandmas. Like I get to fight for tenants who their landlords are being scumbags and, you know, trying to fleece them out of a ton of rent that they don't owe or trying to force them to pay back damages that didn't ever happen. So it's really fun to be on that side of it. But I completely get that negative view of attorneys because there's so many of us who are that way. It's really disappointing. Have you ever personally had to take on a case that compromised your morals at all? And I realize lawyers can't really talk about specifics of a lot of their cases, but I, speaking in general terms. Sure. So I, I actually did have one case I took on where when the client initially came to me, I thought they were right on. Like they described this case to me. It was a restraining order thing. Won't go much more into it than that. Sure. But. I thought my client initially was coming from a place of just, you know, they were very genuine, I thought, and were in the right, and they were being, I thought they were being harassed. As I did research into their claims, I found that they weren't. That they were actually, what a lot of what they were feeding me, in my opinion, because it was really, you know, it was still a he said, she said sort of thing, I thought my clients were in the wrong. And, but they had signed me up as their attorney. So I had to fight for them the best I could. I also had told them right when they signed up with me, fortunately enough, there's really very little chance you're going to win this case. Restraining <laughs> order, because it's not easy to get one of those things in order to get a restraining order. You have to show someone keeps harassing you over and over again, and they're not going to stop doing it without a restraining order. Sure. Most people, as soon as they hear they're going to court, they're going to, I don't want to deal with that person anymore. Right. Keep them away. That's what happened here. Fortunately enough, the person that they were suing said, hey, I have no interest in dealing with these people whatsoever anymore. And I got to walk away from that one pretty easily. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think a tough part with that, in California, we do actually have rules. Once you have taken on a client, it's fairly hard to remove yourself from the case. Huh. Um, unless they want you to do something that is potentially criminal, or you reach such an impasse in representing them that you can't do it without disagreeing with everything they say, they won't let you drop. So this one was one of those tough ones where it's like, I see enough of what they're saying. I'm not in complete and total disagreement, but I'm almost there. 
Right. <laughs> yeah, that just that rock in a hard place scenario just feels like I, I would feel so conflicted. It's tough. And, you know, I, I think a benefit of being in the small town that I am is I know a good part of the population. So I can tend to judge. You come to me and you have what seems like a pretty good sob story, but I know those folks and I know what they're telling me doesn't fit into their like personality at all. It's like, you're probably not the one who's like sitting there and quiet on this side of the fence as your neighbor's throwing peaches at you or something. Like, no. So fortunately being where I am, it's easier to weed out those clients generally. But sometimes you get friends who come and are just kind of, you know, a little bit off their rocker with the mm. things are coming out. So it really, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun, but it's also interesting. Sometimes you're gonna get stuff that's just tough. And that's, I guess, a lot of people want jobs that challenge them. And, and I would imagine being a lawyer is super duper challenging at times, even, you know, a small town lawyer, just between knowing what the law is and understanding the cases that you, that you take on and, and going through whatever process you have to go through, whether it's a trial process or whatever, there's got to be a lot of challenge there. It's got to be a lot of late nights. <laughs> yeah. So that's a funny, like, I really, I'm not always great about setting my limits in terms of when I cut from work and go back to my personal time. And so I've had to set that alarm for myself. Unless I'm in the middle of, you know, getting towards a trial, I don't let myself go past six o'clock anymore because it would otherwise turn into 14, 18 hour days, especially I, I'm single. I don't have a significant other who's telling me you need to stop and pay attention to me. My cats will do that, but they can sit on my lap while I'm typing. So right. they don't mind if I'm working. Right. So yeah, it is really one of those things where, especially because the law changes constantly. You know, the law is not a static beast. Every day there's new changes to the law. So you have to constantly be researching and being on top of these new things. Otherwise, you're not doing your job right and your client gets screwed as a result. But yeah, you, finding that balance is tough at times, especially because it's something I like. You know, right. it's really fun to do that research and it's fun to go in those holes until you realize you've done it for three weeks in a row and you haven't like eaten a real meal. How do you avoid getting to that point? Burnout, I feel like burnout's a thing that cuts across any work endeavor, uh, particularly people who are geared towards being workaholics don't know when to stop until it's too fucking late. Yes. It sounds like you know where your limits are. Did you have to crash to figure out where that limit was or were you a little bit more conscious of knowing what you couldn't couldn't get away with? So that's actually a funny thing. Until the past two years, I wasn't working as an attorney. I've been licensed for almost 10 years. Okay. But I was teaching for quite a bit before that. And I hit that burnout point with teaching. You know, teaching is another thing where you just, you put so much extra time into it, all the extra hours, if you want to do it well, you're going to put the extra effort and extra time in beyond that. And I just hit a complete wall with it. And I had told myself at five years of teaching, I was also going to ask that question. Do I want to go back to law? Do I want to really give this another chance? And after five years, I felt so burnt out from, you know, 14, 15 hour days. I used to do field trips for the kids where we'd be gone for a week and a half. And I'd be the only adult on this trip with 15 high schoolers driving across the country. Great experiences, but also you get so burnt out being the one person doing that. I'm not a parent. I don't 
have the experience of raising kids and spending 24 hours a day with them. And I found that I committed myself so much to that position that I had to consciously set back once I went into legal work. And I, I run my own practice here, so I can do it. Right. I don't have any hours. Yeah, absolutely. COVID was actually kind of a blessing for that, honestly, because it forced me to be at home. You know, it forced me to be there for six months. And I realized if we slow down a little bit, it's not a huge issue. You know, if I get something to somebody a day late, as long as it's not this pressing thing that has a deadline, oh, well. It's not buddy. So I think, you know, honestly, that was a benefit I got from COVID, from being able to work at home, from having done that transition around the same time. I kind of got lucky in realizing that boundaries in work are really important and kind of figuring out where to set mine. Good deal. I, some people never hit that realization point. No, uh, no, no. I have friends who are, you know, you see them in the corporate law world and they just, they work 18 hours a day every single day and they get divorced and they don't go out. They've got tons of money, but what are they doing with it? What's right. the point? Right, right. I'm a big proponent of, of work-life balance. Look, it took a while for me to get there also. And, and I, I love to work and I love my work, but I don't love feeling over encumbered by work. So, you know, it's all about finding your balance and it sounds like you've gotten there. You know what? I think actually both of us have something in common that really probably helps with that though. Being music nuts and <laughs> I'm a live music fan as well i guess since right. we've talked we have like you know live concerts haven't been much of a thing yeah they haven't been shows but concerts happen at night right and so force you to have kind of this cutoff of i want to go to a show every night if i can living in a rural area that's not a reality right see but, my, my issue is my job is in music so sometimes going to shows is work totally <laughs> so. totally so that's yeah. interesting. Do you ever find that that somewhat affects your enjoyment of it? 100%. 100%. I mean, how if, if I go to a show and it's a band that I'm not a fan of, or, you know, I have to be there in service of a label or an artist, I'm not really enjoying the show. I'm working. I'm an employee at that time. And the show is just kind of something going on while I schmooze or do whatever it is that I have to do. You know, I don't take it for granted. Look, there are plenty of people with less interesting, less fun. But, you know, sometimes it's like, eh, you know, I don't want to go to a show. Maybe I just want to sit at home and watch TV. Or maybe I want to go on a date. Or maybe I, I want to not schmooze with these people. Or have to turn the extrovert mic on. So, you know, it's, it's, there, there, there are more pluses and minuses but there are still minuses sure i honestly i i went into law school thinking i was going to go into music law and it fairly quickly changed away from that and i think a large part of it was i didn't want to in any way taint my love of music you know i, I didn't want it to turn into something where i was going to hate any aspect of it of enjoying like a concert or ever you know, not being forced to go to something where I didn't want to. It was just one of those things where I thought, guy, this is my truest, biggest passion. I can't turn it into work. And that's... That may have been the smarter move, Brian. Because <laughs> uh, there, I mean, look, I love music. I've loved music my whole life. I've worked in music. 
for 28 years. But there are some times, particularly with the business aspects of it, where I'm like, you know what? Fuck this shit. Like, this totally. Awful. <laughs> I think it would really burn me too if you have this band you love and you meet them and you just like, you know, you're, the business interaction shows you that those folks are not great people. Right. I'm, I'm fine not knowing if a band is terrible or I'm fine, you know, I love metal. So there's a lot of problematic people in metal and I can deal with that if I can deal with them from afar. But if I know that person and they're really just acting like a scumbag, I think it would affect my ability to enjoy their music. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's happened too, where you meet somebody and you know, you're a fan of them and you get to know them personally and you're kind of like, and I really try I, I very hard, particularly in the last few years, as social media has revealed how problematic many of the people that we once held dear are or were. I really try to clearly separate art from creator of art. I think that's so important to do, you know, because especially if we're listening to artists from a long time ago, they're coming from different worlds. and. Yes. They, the, the actions that they're taking could be really just objectively terrible, but back then it could have seemed de rigueur, it's just normal. Right. And now, like, God, you can't do that. That's yeah. just, that's not appropriate whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of nuance involved with that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, I can't, I was reading an article today, I think it might've been in the Washington Post or on CNN about you know, fandom, and they brought up Louis C.K., who, you know, I used to love Louis C.K., and I actually bumped into him a few times, because I would, you know, he lived in the neighborhood I worked in at the time, and the last time I bumped into him was election day, believe it or not, election day 2016. Oh. Uh, you know, I'm coming back from the poll, he's coming back from the poll, he's got his Hillary button on, we're both feeling good, we kind of like nodded at each other, and obviously shit went a different way that evening and then Louis C.K.'s career went right into the toilet but the point that I'm I want to make is that he's kind of doing this heel turn um yeah and he he has he is doing the opposite of apologizing for being a dick yeah it and, seems like he's yeah yeah and it's like okay I have to tap out of this like I can't watch, you know, I can't watch Louie anymore because this guy, like, it's just not worth it. You know, and I think it's hard example, to separate. Yeah. Right. He's a hard one to separate because the bad things he did are what his art's about. Right. That's, right. I, I had that same thing today. I don't know exactly how to pronounce the musician's name, but Van Rye? R-H-Y-E. R-H-Y-E, yep. Yes, and just, you know, reading the allegations that his ex-wife put out there. Yep. I was thinking about that today too. I, I just love, I love Rise music. Totally, same. When that came out, I was all over it. I just was so into that. But hearing about those samples, oh God, it just, yeah. it was revolting. That. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, switching gears a little bit, talking about you being a metal fan and a lawyer, for me, I, I, I try not to generalize. Until I started meeting other lawyers, there was a look you associated with attorneys. Yes. Um, and you're here, you're wearing, you got a metal t-shirt on, I assume. I see only the top half of the logo. Yes. Celtic. Classic. Yep. You know, you've got the metal beard. 
you've got tattoos. When you grow up and you're thinking of LA law and attorneys in suits and, and lots of hair gel and, and that kind of thing, like Brian Mack doesn't look like a celebrity lawyer. No. And I never will. I That's never been my identity whatsoever. I don't know. I think I, I, you, I do run into problems with that at times. There are certain people who they don't expect that I'm going to be an attorney because I'm not looking exactly like the thing that they're looking for. I think that actually helps in a small town by and large, though, because, you know, most of those the folks here are not big city people. They don't want to deal with the guy who looks like a corporate lawyer. They want to deal with the guy who they see at the grocery store or who like they see me out on a hiking trail. I'm fishing next to them and I look like that guy. Right. I look like their brother or their uncle or something like that. So it's a lot more comfortable for them too. And also I didn't have any clients today, so I wore a t-shirt. Normally I'm more gussied up when I'm, you know, if I have to meet with somebody. Okay, yeah, because even like looking through your social media, you don't come across generally as a shirt and tie kind of dude. No. It's uncomfortable when I do it. It's it's not my preferred style. If the court didn't require me to wear that when I went into went into the court itself, I wouldn't. Good. Yeah, it's funny. I, I I'm thinking now about my friend Rob, who's also a lawyer, and is is a huge hardcore metalhead. And the first time I saw him dressed up for court was maybe like a year after I met him. Okay. And I he just randomly walked onto to, to the subway as I'm going to work, and it was like the face and the rest of the body didn't match. Like someone else's body got grafted onto his face and I had to do a double take and I was like, oh shit. Like <laughs> it really throws you off, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember that at law school too. The first day I saw a bunch of my friends who were dressed up who are like me and don't fit into that mold at all. It really throws you off. You look like a completely different person. Right. And I do, it, it makes you act a different way too when you're dressed kind of that way. It puts you in a different mindset. Sure. I mean, is that a, is it a good mindset or just like a, I, I'm uncomfortable out of my element yeah. kind of mindset? I, I don't think it's necessarily good or bad, but it, it does help me be more formal and more, I guess, more focused on the fact that I'm doing something that has a big effect for those people. Because if I'm in court, I'm wearing my suit, I've got to be really professional and I've got to make sure I'm doing the best I can to make sure my client doesn't lose out on whatever they're trying to have done. It, it, that, I think it actually does. It really helps me transition into a different way of both acting and thinking that's important to be in court. I, I feel like that makes sense in some cases. When you were a kid, you had your school clothes and your play clothes. And when you are dressed a certain way, you act differently. When you're dressed more formally, you will act more formally. And, and Just how we present ourselves really does. It makes a difference on every aspect of how we interact. You know, and I, I never thought of that as like a way to code switch almost. The same way when you're with a certain group of friends, you will talk a certain way. And then when you're with a different group of friends, you talk a different way. Aesthetically, that can happen as well. Oh, to if I were to go into the courtroom, not dressed like in a suit and tie, I would not be able to interact with the other attorneys in the same way. But the second I wear that, I walk in there and it's all pats on the back. And, oh, how you been doing recently? What cases you been working? You just immediately fall into that group. It really, I, I, I think, yeah, code switching is exactly right. It's right. falling into that image and then it changes a bit how you interact.
Yeah, that totally checks. So where did your your show addiction come from? Where where did that germinate? That's my dad. My from childhood, from a very, very early age, my dad's always been a music nut. I remember growing up, he didn't have records. He sold damn him, he sold all his records off before I was born. As a huge record collector, it kills me <laughs> because by almost everything he had. He raised me on all of it, you know? Right. But so he, as a kid, he had CDs everywhere, just everywhere. And I'll never, I think the first show I remember my dad and my mom going to, I was maybe six or seven and I had to stay at my aunt's house because they went to go see Sting. And I just remember, I don't know, what do they mean go see Sting? What's, what's going to happen there? And then they came back and they told me what a concert was. And I was just, I need to go to this. So the first one I remember going to, they took me to see the Moody Blues, crappy ass venue on state line of Nevada and California. They were in their 60s. They didn't perform very well. It wasn't great, but it was still, I remember that as like, whoa, there's all these lights. The music was loud. Everybody's excited. There's all these smells in the crowd that I've never smelled before. <laughs> I learned later that's what marijuana and cigarettes are. You know, it was... It was just, I remember the entire experience. And then when I turned 16, because Bishop is very rural. We're four hours from the nearest town. Oh, wow. That's, the, yeah. That's super any, rural. Any direction. We have Vegas four hours to the east, San Francisco five hours to the west, Reno four hours north, LA four hours south, nothing between. So like middle of nowhere. So we don't get concerts. When I was 16 in high school, this would have been 20, 2002, I was just so into the new metal movement. So I'm going to out myself there. I loved Limp Bizkit. I loved Korn. I won't I really Right? I mean, a certain I mean, age. I also had a Limp Bizkit phase. So what, like, what the fuck am I judging? <laughs> we all, you know, of a certain age, you probably, everybody did. And, you know, Limp Bizkit's not great. I'm going to no, go out there. You're not. They're not a very good band. I saw them and they were terrible, but I did love System of a Down back then. I still do. I'll cop to that one. And they were touring. They were playing Vegas. My mom said, okay, for your 16th birthday, we'll get you tickets. So I got my driver's license the day before. We drove out, drove out the next day to Vegas, and that was my first club show. And that was just, I will never forget that, of being in a place where you could almost touch the band. And they're playing so loud and every person in that venue was so excited to see them and that feeling of just i'm seeing something that's making me feel like i'm seeing something special that i'm seeing something all my friends want to be there to see and i get to actually do it and then the band better than they ever did on record seeing that was just whoa i was sold i'm gonna go to every concert i can go to and i pretty much have since then so if you were to put a number on it, how many shows would you estimate that you have been to? Oh, please don't. I, don't, I have a list. You have a, have you, you've been keeping this list since Corn or since uh, System of a Down? Not since System of a Down. When I was a sophomore in college, I believe it was, I went to go see, I want to say Sonic Youth. And when I got back, I was like, guy, I've seen a band in that venue before and I can't remember who it was. So I started going through my ticket list and I looked it up and then I realized I'm starting to forget some of the shows I've seen. 
So that night I sat down and I just tried to list out everything I'd seen. And then ever since then, so sophomore year of college on, I've kept track of every show I've seen. And I think I maybe only missed three or four prior to that. So I'm putting my list up on my computer here right now. And I can actually tell you exactly how many shows I've seen. It's kind of, a, I, I love that I have this. Holy crap. It's so cool. Like my very first concert was even before the Moody Blues, but I don't remember. I was two years old and I saw Raffle. Luga, man. Mm. Can't go wrong as a two-year-old with Raffi. <laughs> That's where you should be, right? Exactly. Be weird if you were to do the system of a down concert. It looks like I have been to 648 different individual concerts. That includes like one festival counts as a whole concert. Sure. Um, I have seen 1,450 different bands. Wow. So that's, I, I just love it. I can pull it up and tell you how many times I've seen a band and where and when. That is a level of nerdiness that I wholeheartedly respect. I do not think I can match that. But if I had a hat on, I would take it off uh, for, for you. And also the ability to actually remember you know, because I'm there are bands that I've seen that by the end of the show I was too uh, intoxicated yeah. to remember that I'd been at that show. So the totally. to throw all that into a, a, a doc is is pretty impressive. So I'm really grateful I did it. I I was not until I was 20. I didn't really drink or smoke. Okay. So I did this before I was really getting you know more into those sorts of things, and I'm again so glad I did because. There's a lot of things I wouldn't remember otherwise. And being people who, you know, have ties to the music industry, at least somewhat, you don't always get a ticket to a show, especially now. But even back then, a lot of times you'd be on a list. So you just wouldn't be able to look to your ticket and say, oh, this happened then and this band was playing there. And that was the other thing is right as I started to get into the industry down in L.A. and realize, oh, I'm not having my tickets anymore is what really inspired me to do that. Because I wanted to be able to know everyone I've seen. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. So this past weekend, and part of the reason we had to reschedule this is because yeah. we were at a festival. Yes, yeah. So first one I've been to in two years, I went to Psycho Las Vegas, which is not just metal, but a predominantly metal festival that happens, obviously, of, in Las Vegas. Oh, not a lot. of uh, Quite a few of my friends were there. Really? Yeah. Excellent. A lot of pictures on my social media feed from, from that festival. So I went with a total of, God, 15 friends. Okay. And every single one of us, when we left the, on Sunday after the last show, we're just in total agreement that, and I, I think a large part of it is due to COVID, due to this lack of shows for so long, we were all just in agreement. This was the nicest festival we've ever been to. Everybody was so excited to be at a show and there's just conversations everywhere Somebody tall steps in front of you. All you had to do is ta- tap on their shoulder. They'd look back and apologize and move. You know, somebody steps on your foot. They'd apologize right away. I had somebody knock over a beer. He went right away and bought me. Bought you another beer. Sweet. Just, it was all week and people were so nice. It was such an encouraging thing to get back into after being so used to just isolation and kind of the negativity that comes with it. Yeah. The- out of, I, I believe they said there was 4,000 tickets sold. And just, it was great to feel that positive energy of a crowd. How comfortable did you feel being in, in a crowd? 
So Nevada currently has a mask mandate going on. If you're indoors, they ask you to wear a mask pretty much across the board. Okay. And I'd say in the average casinos we were in, it was about maybe 60-40 masked up to not. More, a little bit more than not. But the festival attendees, I'd say about 90%. People were on it. So I did not feel uncomfortable at all. I've been vaccinated since April because I have health conditions that require me to be. I, I got it early even because of that. But I'm still going to wear the mask there just to respect if, you know, who, who knows who might be there who's immunocompromised and can't get that shot. Right. But it was, I, I thought everybody was so damn respectful that it was really impressive. I wasn't concerned at all. Here's something that I've learned over the past, uh, uh, I'd say like 15 to 20 years as I've worked with labels and bands. Because like I didn't grow up in, in, in the metal scene. You know, the hardest shit that I listened to as a teenager was like Guns N' Roses. Learning about metal is something that's happened in, in my 30s and up. And you see, I have this image, right, in my head of these like bearded, like tattooed, right? And most of the metal people I know are the biggest pussycats Teddy in bears. the world. Yeah, teddy bears. It's nothing like this big beardy like tattooed dude, like, oh, bring it in, you know, and then and, and, like the, the warmth and niceness is so antithetical to the what you what you would assume just from looking at at, at them and I, that's not just my experience I, I know other people who have said the same thing i actually i i had a theory about this that i think really came out even more at this festival this past weekend which is that metalheads do have this introversion and there's a little bit of misanthropy there too and that like the average rude person who will like push you in the subway station or like cut in front of you in line those people drive us nuts more than like the normal person. Sure. And so a bunch of metal people together, we all don't want to see that activity. We all don't want to see that attitude. And so as a result, you get modeling. What should people be like? You know, we're trying to be friendly and respectful to every other person there. And you get a bunch of it together. It's really just a kind of warm, inviting atmosphere, which again, I don't think anybody thinks if you're outside the metal community, right. you picture like very angry and like negative and hate-filled people. No, we got an outlet for that. It's metal. We aren't angry and negative and hate-filled because we get to scream. We get to play loud music. We get to mosh. And then afterwards you give your friends a bunch of hugs and like you're all warm and happy. I like that. I love that. See, that, that makes me feel good inside. Um, Definitely felt that way after this weekend. I mean, we walked away. I had eight friends from Bishop come with me. All of us bought tickets on Sunday to go to the festival again next year because everybody had time. That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, when we were kind of prepping for the show, you'd mentioned that going to this festival sort of brought some stuff into your head about body image. And, and how does that correlate? There's so a few things that I noticed there. First off is just, it was so wonderful being in a crowd and seeing people of all shapes and sizes and colors all together. That's Bishop, that's another thing I'll say about my small town. I love this place, but we are either white, Hispanic, or Native American. That's it. We have a tribe here in town, so we have a pretty big Native American population. I want to say there's maybe five to ten Black people in town. You know, there's no Asian people around this area. Most everybody kind of looks the same. 
And so it was so nice to be in a crowd where you see, you know, people who are big, people who are really, really skinny, people who are super tall, people who are short, bald headed to like crazy colors everywhere, dreadlocks, all of this. And nobody's looking at them like there's anything off about it. Uh, one thing that a couple of friends really marveled about, and I, I, once I realized it, it was amazing, is that there were women walking around in tiny bikinis all week, comfortable about it, not worried that some creep might do something to them because they know they're in the community where people are that's just not going to do that. Are people going to be and, respectful? Totally. I mean, we saw that respect all week, and I did. I don't think I saw a single person that at least that I could see was being made feel to be uncomfortable by somebody else. And I'm sure it happened. You know, any group of people that big, it's going to happen somewhere. But the fact that you're not seeing it all over the place, like you do at a lot of concerts, people get drunk and they act like assholes. Right. We didn't see that. And it was so great. Like, just to see people not being molested for who they are is a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And that makes you, that, that made me feel more comfortable to be myself there. You know, right. I, I could walk around without my shirt and not worry if somebody's going to look at my gut. Or if they do, who cares? Right. Right. It's a okay. That's the way it should be. I, it was, it's, it's crazy to me. And look, I, I, could, I could talk for a long time about this stuff, that people are so judgmental is not the word. And I'm not sure what the word exactly is, but just that, that people have so many issues kind of related to, I mean, I think some of it is just American, like Puritanism and Absolutely. people being taught through the lens of whether it's Catholicism or whatever, people being taught to be ashamed of their body. It's really shitty that everybody comes with all of this baggage. It sucks. And, you know, I, I think especially having grown up the time that we did where 80s and 90s, there's just such an image of like, you got the supermodels everywhere and everybody's got to be skinny and fit. And I know both my parents were that way, you know, growing up. If you had any fat on you, it was like, they wouldn't say anything negative to you, but the way they, they talked about themselves made me think that way. Hmm. It's just like, go down on when they gain a pound or two. And it's so, that's been a, a hard thing to break out of, you know, of just thinking, if I've got 30 extra pounds on me, as long as I'm feeling healthy, it's probably not a big deal. I have a friend in this area who I really credit a lot for helping me overcome that. So she runs this Instagram account called Indigenous Women's Hike. And my friend Jolie, she's she's a big lady. Like, she's very proud. And she calls herself a fat woman. So I'll just use that term. She's a big fat lady who can go out and hike hundreds of miles in the backcountry and just a bat it. She can take that backpack for 20 days and rock it. And she says, it doesn't matter how big I am. I can be myself and I can love my body and I want it out there for people to see. And when she started really being open about that is what kind of helped me change the way I thought about it. And I can see there being like an aversion or a, a hesitation about that, not just due to size, but I don't think guys are really taught to appreciate their bodies unless they're like super ripped. Yep, unless it's a rock, you know, right. like you can, that sort of stuff. It's, yeah, you'd otherwise you're just kind of whatever. It's not that you're even taught, I don't think we're even taught to like look negatively upon ourselves. It's just, it doesn't it's, matter. It's, yeah. Ignore. 
ignoring. And I think part of that is that you're supposed to be the stoic individual who doesn't have emotions. You're supposed to just, you know, white America, you're supposed to be this blank face who just doesn't respond to anything. And that's so unhealthy. That is just not a great way to live our lives whatsoever in any aspect. And I think we're really starting to see, hopefully, a shift away from that as people realize that it doesn't make you, it doesn't make you more impressive as a human being. It doesn't make you better able to do anything whatsoever other than fall apart. And really, like, it just makes your relationships worse. You don't get to actually identify with these people on a deeper level, be it friends, be it, you know, your lovers, be it your family members, anybody. If you're that walled off from the world, you're not interacting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting. You you mentioned white America, and I'm like, oh, well, cultural minorities kind of have that masculine, you know, stigma too, but it's learned behavior. It totally is, because I... I don't, I don't imagine that in like, you know, if you go back to any countries, I mean, outside of, I, I really picture this being so much tied to Christianity and just, you're not supposed to show your emotions because you, you get too emotional and then you're just going to, you know, maybe create sin. Oh God, that we might right. do something like that. Right. <laughs> right. You're absolutely right. I, I, has that been a journey for you? Not just physically but emotionally to get to a point where you're, where you have to reckon with all of that stuff? Or did you come of age at a time when it was kind of okay to be a little bit less traditionally butcher or or whatever? John Wayne. So I definitely grew up in the society, you know, I mean, where that was the ideal, but I've never fit into that. I was, I was definitely the kid who as a younger kid was getting called all sorts of names that were like, it's an insult to call him a girl or something feminine or call him gay or something like that. Like, I never cared because most of my best friends growing up were women. Most of you know, like, it's just being more open with your emotions. And it's definitely something I have to learn because it's when you're in a teenager, when you're growing up, you want to conform the best you can to fit in with everybody. And so I definitely tried to fit into that masculine model for a long time. And so I feel like the past 15 years have been breaking those walls back down to try and get back to being more normal and more myself and feeling comfortable in my own shoes. I feel lucky in that I feel like my family has, I've seen most of the men in my family take a similar path around the same time, including very, very luckily my father. You know, somebody who was a very walled off and closed and doesn't express his emotions. When my mom died, he met somebody about a year afterwards who told him, you're not allowed to do that bullshit anymore. You have to be emotional. You have to be open with me or we're not going to be together. And to him, to credit him completely, he grew and he's become somebody who's more open. And seeing that, that even my old man, dad, he was like the biggest grump in the world as a kid. He can do that. Heck, I should be able to do it too then, right? Right. And I made your relationship with him better too. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I think for both my brother and I, our relationship's a lot better because my dad's become more open. He'll talk with us about things. It'll be, he'll talk with us about his emotions rather than just ignore them and, you know, drink and get angry at something. Right. Which is standard, standard thing you do in America, right? Yep. That's, that is typical guy behavior. I mean, you, you hide your emotions behind uh, alcohol or work or 
any variety of things that will mask it, but not confront it. Absolutely. I also definitely edit a lot. I, I am very blessed to have great groups of friends, you know, people who seem like they're further along on that path than I am. And I always, I think it's very important to have friends who are not just like you, you know, not the same as you, but people from all walks of life, people from different races and genders and backgrounds, all those sorts of things. Because then you get to know different parts of society and you get to appreciate it better and you get to appreciate yourself better because you see how you interact and reflect with those folks too. It just makes your world better. Yes, it does. I agree. So this is not my typical closing question, but this actually feels like a good closing question. Look into the future. What do you think you most need to work on? What is your next like evolutionary step in in who Brian Mack is? What is that? It's just cars driving by playing music. So what do I need to work on? I mean, definitely emotional openness is something that I'm getting better at, but I think that's a hard thing to do, especially when you're getting to know somebody. I'd love to be able to be that right away to be able to meet somebody and immediately just be as open as I can be so that they can meet me on my full level and I'm not giving them a fake person of myself. I feel like especially attempting to get into relationships, romantic relationships, that that's something I struggle with. Once I'm attracted to somebody, those walls go up a little bit again. Yeah, is it so much giving somebody like a false narrative or is it unveiling yourself in like slow... I think it's that. I think it's at least ideally it's that is the unveiling. But I think problematic for me is I see myself sometimes not being able to do the unveil. And so then I do think it becomes a false narrative. Right. If you don't open up further, if you don't really open to that. And I don't know, I've always struggled. I'm very good at making close friends that will last for a long time. But making that romantic connection something else. It's something I've struggled with that I don't necessarily feel comfortable becoming that emotionally vulnerable with somebody that potentially they could hurt me really bad, you know? So here's something that that's really kind of made it so present to me over the years is that my close friends are people that I view on the same level relationship wise as potential romantic partners. So if I date somebody, it's like my best friends, there's not really a difference. This just may happen to be a best friend that I sleep with. And I realize that there are people who look at platonic and not platonic relationships in, in, in different you know kind of terms. It's maybe easier to be open to people or easier to have relationships when you don't have to be naked emotionally or you know metaphorically or uh, literally in front of somebody. Do you see there being a huge difference from one relationship to the other? And is that maybe the, the where you're sort of faltering and maybe trying to make that next step? I think that's exactly where I'm faltering is that I don't, I, ideally, I don't want there to be a difference. I, that's what I exactly is like, I want to think of it as a relationship's a relationship, friend, a person you're sleeping with, that should be the same because you love those people no matter what. There's an emotional connection to them. And it's just still something I need to work on to get myself when it's actually happening. Because as, as an analytical sort of person, I can look at it and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's what I want it to be. But then I jump into it and it's a lot harder for it to actually be that. 
Once I start sharing certain emotional things, unless it's the friends that I've had since day one, the friends I've known forever, I feel so comfortable I can do that with them like it's second nature. Right. And I feel like it's just such, it's more of a struggle to get there romantically with somebody when you're also doing, for me, when I'm also doing these extra things, you know, like you're not just doing the friend things of like going hanging out, but there's this extra sharing, this extra opening up that there's a vulnerability that feels scary. I get it. And I think that's worthwhile. I, I think being scared is a very important thing that we <laughs> I think it's awesome to be scared because that means something pulled you out of your comfort zone. Being scared, I think fear is one of those things that's always viewed as a negative emotion. When it isn't, it's, it's like selfishness is so often viewed as a negative emotion when it's not necessarily a negative thing. Sometimes it's good to be scared of something because like you just said, you're afraid because it's, excuse me, something you're not comfortable doing. And whether that's being emotionally vulnerable or, I mean, something I wouldn't do like jumping out of a fucking airplane or going to a metal show, there's value in all of that potentially if you confront that fear and, and move forward. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think fear is just, a, it's one of those emotions that so many people shy away from. And I think it's very worthwhile to confront your fear, you know, that to realize that it's there and ask, why am I scared? And deal with that. It's the only way you're going to be able to move past it and do new things in your life. If you just shy away from everything you're scared of, damn, you're just going to watch Friends all day. <laughs> and who wants to watch Friends? Who really wants to watch Friends at all? I didn't want to watch Friends when it was on TV initially, so I don't want to watch the reruns now. No disrespect towards Friends. Okay, maybe a little bit of disrespect towards Friends because that show never had any people of color on it. Anyway, that's all beside the point. Thank you, Brian Mack, for being on the show and being such a great guest. You can follow Brian on Instagram at bmack86. If you are near his town in California and you need a lawyer, I would say look him up and maybe give him a shout. Also, if you are a showgoer and you are in the Los Angeles or San Francisco or Las Vegas area and uh, you see somebody that looks like the picture that we're going to be posting on socials, it's probably Brian. So walk up to him and say hi, buy him a drink or something. Once again, Brian, thank you very much. Uh, I want to let you folks know that on October 21st, a charity that I work with very closely, Sound Mind Live, is doing a show. If you are in Brooklyn, New York, or anywhere in or near New York City, I hope you attend the show. Once again, it is October 21st, which is World Mental Health Day. It is called Unheard Mentality. There will be several musicians performing, including Fantastic Negrito. Um, so it's at Brooklyn Bowl. If you want to know more about it, uh, go to soundmindlive.org. You can follow Sound Mind Live on uh, various forms of social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, the whole nine yards. Uh, the founder of Sound Mind Live, Chris Bullard, has been on Detox before, and uh, they're just a fantastic organization that ties together music and mental health, two things that I'm very, very passionate about. Once again, it is called Unheard Mentality. Uh, Fantastic Negrito, Langhorn Slim, other artists are performing, and it is taking place on October 21st, which is a Thursday, Brooklyn Bowl in New York City. It is a charity event. I hope that you show up if you are local. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We really hope that you stick around and listen to future episodes or past episodes if you feel so inclined. You can obviously listen to Detoxicity on the podcast platform of your choosing. And if you want to get in touch with me, please hit me up on Instagram, Detox Pod Guy, 
Twitter, TizMikeJoseph, or you can email me at detoxpod at gmail.com. Always willing to hear constructive criticism, thoughts, ideas, real, realizations, and if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show or you know somebody who would make a good guest, I will take recommendations from now until the end of time, so please feel free to reach out to me. I want to thank a couple of people who've been very important to this show. Uh, Calvin Williams composed the music that you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. Jacob Block composed the logo or created the logo for the show. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for providing inspiration for me to come up with this idea and bring it to fruition. Once again, thank you all for listening. I really, really appreciate it and take care of yourselves. Peace.